It all started with an ad in a newspaper. A mother of three looking to find a loving home for their family dog, Dixie, an English setter. The family was planning on moving to England, and unfortunately, the family pet would have to stay behind in America. This is a military family, and the woman's husband was away when she was making these arrangements. Someone had responded to the ad for Dixie, another military man. A few days later, the woman and two out of three of her children are found dead in the home. The man who adopted the dog is suspect number one. This man is charged, found guilty, and sentenced to death. The man is now sitting on death row when one day he and the police receive a letter saying, quote, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry, you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X, unquote. It won't be until decades later DNA technology is advanced enough to shed some light on what happened to the woman and her children. Did an innocent man go to prison? Well, come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. This week's case put me on a guilty, innocent roller coaster. I have changed my mind so many times as to whether the right person is in prison for this horrific crime. So many times. I'm, I'm going to get into it. I'm going to start from the beginning. I'm going to tell you what I know. May 7th, 1985 was the day 31-year-old mother of three, Catherine Eastburn, had arranged for 27-year-old Timothy Hennis to come over to the Fayetteville home in North Carolina. He was coming over to meet the family dog, Dixie, to see if he would want to adopt the dog. The family was relocating to England as Catherine's husband, Gary, had accepted a job with the Royal Air Force. They had been married 12 years. Catherine's husband, Gary, he was a captain in the Air Force and was at this time away in Alabama for work, which left Catherine and their three young children alone. The town they lived in seemed very safe. It was within a mile of the army base, and there were lots of military families living around them, including Timothy Hennis. Timothy Hennis had a wife and a baby girl himself. He was a sergeant in the U.S. Army, and he lived very near to Catherine Eastburn, which is why he saw the ad Catherine had posted in the community newspaper. Timothy and his wife, they already had a spitz. So I was like, what is a spitz? I love dogs. I was like, what is the spitz? I've never heard of this. So I looked it up and it's like a Pomeranian, but I would say a bit bigger. They're absolutely adorable. So he and his wife, they already had a spitz. He was going to take Dixie and see how Dixie would get along with with their spits. I'd imagine if the dogs didn't get along, Dixie would have to be returned to the Eastburns and they would have to find a, a family for Dixie. But in the meantime, Timothy Hennis was going to take Dixie home, see if it got along with their spits. That Tuesday evening, Timothy arrives at Catherine's home. Her five, three, and almost two-year-old daughters, they're asleep. He meets Dixie and he agrees to take her and see how she goes at his home with his dog and 
all seems fine when he leaves. He leaves, everything's fine. In fact, all seems fine until Thursday night. Neighbors had even seen Catherine up until then. Timothy Hennis, he claims that Catherine had even called him Thursday evening to make sure the dogs were getting on okay. And apparently they were. And this, that makes total sense. I guess Dixie had found her new home. After all, is where that would have landed. This is where I need more details. Because I couldn't find a definitive time that Catherine called Timothy to ask about the dogs. But also... Gary Eastburn said he called his wife every Thursday night for a weekly chat. And this week, she didn't answer. Again, I don't have the time Catherine allegedly called Timothy. And I don't have the time that Gary called Catherine. And I really wish I did. After Thursday evening, the Eastburn's car, it was in the driveway. Unmoved. Didn't move. Catherine wasn't seen by the neighbors. Gary hadn't spoke to his wife. And the newspapers piled up on the front step. By the time Sunday rolled around, Catherine's neighbor was noticing the papers. And they were noticing that the car outside wasn't being moved. And he was getting suspicious. The neighbor went and knocked and could hear a baby screaming and crying in the home, but no Catherine or the other two children. The neighbor knows something is very, very wrong and calls police. When police arrive, they enter the home through a window and immediately find the baby in her crib and hand over the dehydrated, starving, screaming baby to the neighbor through the window. The neighbor rushes the baby to her home. She changes the baby, puts an old t-shirt on her, and gives her milk. The woman said the baby was trying desperately to drink this milk as fast as possible because she was so thirsty and that the baby's teeth had turned black from dehydration. Had this baby been left for a few more hours, she would have died. As the baby is being nursed back to health and an ambulance is called, the officer continues through the home. Upon entry, he smelled something very, very horrific. And that smell was death. It wasn't long before he found bodies laying on the floor. The officer immediately called the homicide unit. That poor baby girl was trapped in that home from Thursday night or early Friday morning to Sunday with the bodies of her sisters and her mother in the home. What homicide detectives Robert Biddle and Jack Watts saw in that home was so disturbing and evil, it will stay with them forever. Upon entering the living room, they find a pair of women's jeans, women's underwear that had been sliced off. They find buttons from a blouse that had been torn off and Catherine's running shoes in the middle of the floor as if they had been taken off in a hurry or a scuffle because they were still tied and they were placed very oddly in the room. To me, this would appear Catherine was attacked in her living room for a sexually motivated crime. Why else would her underwear be sliced off with a knife and her clothes forcibly removed? Later, there is a kind of an argument, I guess you could say, as to whether or not a rape had occurred. And I find that completely unbelievable. That's, that is even up for debate. There is no doubt in my mind that this rape had occurred. I mean, there's just staggering evidence that Catherine was raped here. Um, so the, the, 
the even the argument of this being consensual just blew my fucking mind but we're going to talk about that later this next part it does get very gruesome and tragic it does have to do with the death of Catherine and her very very small children so I'm just going to give a warning here the five-year-old daughter Kara she was discovered in her bed stabbed to death and wrapped up in her Star Wars blanket as if she was hiding under her blanket when she was attacked her throat had been cut five years old hiding under her blanket stabbed multiple times in a cut throat what kind of monster is even capable of something like this it gets even worse three-year-old Aaron is discovered in Catherine's bedroom on the floor beside the bed Aaron had been beaten with something on her chest and her back and her throat was also cut on the floor on the other side of the bed was 31-year-old Catherine Eastburn. Catherine had been stabbed 15 times. She was naked from the waist down. Her throat had also been cut. And there was semen found inside her, which would lead us to believe this was rape. I 1 million percent believe that she was raped. There is no doubt in my mind. I read an article published by the New Yorker that there was no evidence of forcible rape discovered. I almost died from shock horror when I read that. What do you call underwear that has been sliced off with a knife, a torn blouse, clothing forcibly removed, 15 stab wounds, a sliced throat, and semen present? I sure would call that forcible rape. What's missing? It could be that there was no tearing around Catherine's genitals, but if whoever did this led Catherine to believe that her children would live, that they would not harm their children if she cooperated, then she would have cooperated and not have struggled. This would most likely make the rape look less violent and forced. Detectives, they have to inform Gary that almost his entire family is dead. And when they call him, they don't give him the entire situation up front. They only tell him that there has been a death in the family and that he needs to come home. And I did hear in a documentary that when Gary got on the phone to the detective, he said something like, how many of them are dead? Even before the detective told him, there had been a death and that really struck me as odd but I think he knew something was really wrong already and he was probably he was probably thinking it was like an accident like a car accident or a carbon monoxide leak or something like that and and the first thing he said was how many of them are are dead and this uh that statement a lot of people thought that was strange I also thought it was strange at first, but then I'm like, you know what? He was just, he was thinking his whole family was dead because he hadn't heard from him in, in a long time. And that comment could essentially mean nothing. So it wasn't until Gary made it back to Fayetteville that he was told his baby girl was still alive. Uh, her, his 22-month-old baby girl, she was still alive. But his wife and two other daughters had been murdered. He was obviously shocked and heartbroken and it was just literally the worst situation in his entire life that ever could have ever occurred. It was just so terrible and horrific. And I doubt words could even describe the sorrow and the loss that he was feeling. But now they need to find the man capable of murdering a mother, children, and leaving a crying baby motherless and to die in her crib. The severity of this case is just 
insurmountable. It's like the devil himself walked into that home and did this. This is as fucked up and as gruesome as it gets. Gary tells detectives, hey, my wife did just sell our family dog. She told me that on Tuesday night, a nice guy came by and bought Dixie, the dog. Detectives, they had also gathered hair, fingerprints, and blood evidence from the crime scene. They found a pubic hair by the couch in the living room. There was smears of blood on the bathroom wall, which looked to have been attempted to be cleaned up. And there was shoe prints recovered as well. A man named Patrick Cohn, he had something to tell police. He said that early Friday morning at 3.30 a.m., he was walking down the Eastburn Street where the murder had taken place because he works very early in the morning. He's a janitor. As he is walking by the Eastburn's home, he tells police he saw a tall white guy leaving, wearing a black members-only jacket, a knitted hat, and jeans. He says that the man had a small mustache and he was carrying a garbage bag. This man got so close to Patrick that he even said something to him. The mysterious man said, quote, leaving a little early this morning, unquote. Then Patrick watched the guy drive off in a white Chevette. So when he says leaving a little early this morning, I don't know if it's more of a question or if the guy in passing is saying, I'm leaving a little early this morning, or if he's saying to Patrick, aren't you leaving a little early this morning? I'm not really sure how that came out, but it just read leaving a little early this morning. So maybe the guy was just saying, hey, I'm leaving a little early this morning. I don't know. If you're leaving a crime scene, the last thing you want to do is make yourself memorable. So that kind of struck me as odd that someone who had just committed this horrific crime would, first of all, leave the house when someone's walking down the road at 3.30 in the morning. And then second of all, walk so close to them, you say something to them, which is going to make them remember you even more. You know what I mean? So this was obviously uh, of huge interest to investigators and they get Patrick to describe the man he saw and to make a composite sketch. Gary Eastburn, he walks through the family home with police to see if anything has been stolen or is missing and Gary notices that his wife's bank card uh, is missing along with a piece of paper which had her pin written on it. Also missing is an envelope of cash. So if the bank card was used to withdraw cash, maybe police could get a solid lead. Maybe if this ATM card was used anywhere, you know, they could get a solid lead on who has it. Or, you know, that would also mean who was in the house. Whoever has the card, stole it from the house, did the crime. In the meantime, detectives, they want to find and talk to this quote-unquote nice guy who bought the Eastburn's English Setter. So they put out a request on the news. They ask if anyone knows the guy or is the guy who bought the Eastburn's dog and to please come talk to police. They're obviously a person of interest, I guess you could say. And Timothy Hennis, he and his wife, they see this on the news and they're like, oh shit. And Timothy, he doesn't hesitate. He immediately goes to the police station to talk to police. His wife comes, his baby comes. And Detective Watts, he's contacted to come speak to Timothy Hennis. And as Detective Watts walks into the room and sees Timothy Hennis sitting there, 
he almost fucking fell over because Timothy Hennis is an identical match for the composite sketch Patrick Cohn and the composite sketch artist had just drew. Detective Watts says the composite sketch artist may have well have drawn that composite sketch from a picture of Timothy Hennis. That's how exact they were. For the next seven hours, Timothy is questioned and nothing seems odd about anything he is saying except the fact he had no one to say where he was Thursday night slash Friday morning as he said he dropped his wife and daughter off at relatives. He said he got some fuel after that and then he went home alone. So apparently his wife and child, they were out of town. They weren't there. Nobody could say, yeah, Timothy was home all Thursday night, all Friday morning. There was nobody to vouch for him. Even with this dodgy bit of information that doesn't make him look good, he agrees to give his DNA in every way police want it. He's like, you want my spit? You want my hair? You want my blood? Take it all. And he was very compliant. Like he gave, he gave them everything, his palm print, his fingerprints. He was like, take it all. And he said that, yeah, he picked up the dog Tuesday. He didn't deny it. He's like, yeah, I bought that dog Tuesday. And Catherine called me Thursday to see if the dogs were getting along. But that's it. That was all. He said he didn't even know her name. And he certainly had nothing to do with the horrific crime that took place in that household. While Timothy was being questioned, police, they took a photo of him and they placed it in a lineup and they show this lineup to Patrick Cohn. I don't know. I think there was like five or six, whatever, different men in this photo lineup. And Patrick Cohn, detectives say that he immediately pointed to Timothy Hennis's picture and he was like, that's the guy. He's like, that's the guy I saw at 3.30 in the morning, early Friday morning, leaving the Eastburns home. The, the morning slash Thursday night, the family was murdered. Patrick Cohn even went through the parking lot and pointed out Timothy's vehicle, which was a white Chevette. And he said, that's the car I saw the man getting into that morning. All this is looking very, very bad for Timothy, but police don't have anything to hold him on. So Timothy is released while police investigate further. This all seems very damning. But after covering the Randall Adams case, I find it hard to believe that police never persuade people in the direction they want them to go in, things they want them to say, things that they want them to see. Um, that Randall Adams case was a real eye-opener. Um, I, Yeah, so did police steer Patrick into pointing out that specific car, Timothy's car? Did they steer him into pointing out Timothy's photo in that lineup? I don't know. Have police done this before in the past? Absolutely. But did Patrick put together that composite sketch before police even knew who Timothy Hennis was? Yeah. Yes, they did. And also, as far as I know, Patrick had already mentioned the white Chevette before Timothy went to police. So how could he know that unless he he saw Timothy there on the night the family was murdered? I guess you could argue maybe he saw Timothy there Tuesday picking up the dog and he got some information crossed in his mind and he's just relating that to, to Thursday. I don't know. I don't know. 
All this, if it's accurate, leads me to believe that Patrick Cohn could have possibly seen Timothy Hennis leaving the Eastburn home the morning they were murdered. That could have happened. Police quickly get a warrant to arrest Timothy Hennis for a triple murder and a rape charge. When detectives start really examining what Timothy did that Thursday evening, they find a piece of interesting news. Timothy's ex-girlfriend, she was home alone as her husband was deployed to Germany. And guess who knew this and stopped by? That's right, Timothy did. After he dropped his wife and child off out of town at their relatives, he went to pay his ex-girlfriend a visit. His ex-girlfriend doesn't exactly say Timothy was there for sex, but it kind of seemed like it. Uh, He told her that his wife had left him. I mean, why else would he go around her house when her husband is away? He goes there at nighttime claiming his wife left him. I don't know. Like, what's what's he playing at here? So Timothy, he got nowhere with his ex-girlfriend that evening. If that's what he was trying to do, there was no sex. Nothing like that ever happened. And he left. Is it possible he then went to Catherine's home? He knew her husband was away. And I mean, he's just kind of did that with his ex-girlfriend knew the husband was away went over there okay now he knows Catherine he knows Catherine's husband is away is it possible he went over there is it possible he made advancements on Catherine and she rejected him and that made him fly into a rage the thing is though that's a pretty crazy rage to just fly into with no previous domestic abuse charges or violent crimes against him and that crime scene was so brutal and the fact three people two of them being a five and a three-year-old little girls were brutally murdered stabbed in their throat slit it seems like the work of a complete madman could timothy be the rapist murdering monster who beats and stabs and cuts throats of women and children. Let's have a look at some more evidence against Timothy. Before hearing this evidence, I could not believe that Timothy Hennis went to the Eastburn home that Thursday evening. But then I read this. Remember what Patrick said the tall white man was wearing the morning he saw him leaving the Eastburn's home? A black members only jacket. That's what he said he saw him leaving in. Guess what jacket not only Timothy owned, but he took to the dry cleaners the same Friday after being seen leaving the Eastburn's home at 3.30 a.m. wearing it. That's right, a black members only jacket. Kind of a crazy coincidence, isn't it? I mean, how could police or Patrick even know that about Timothy? that he had this black members only jacket when Patrick told police that he saw him leaving the home. He couldn't have. He couldn't have known that. And Timothy, he wasn't even known yet to police. They didn't even know that he existed. They didn't let alone he had this jacket. But it is quite strange that the same Friday he's seen leaving the Eastburn home at 3.30 a.m., that same Friday in the afternoon or the evening, whatever, he brings that black members only jacket to a dry cleaners to be cleaned. That seems like a wild coincidence. And I would be very curious to read Patrick Cohn's original statement to see if he was that exact about saying a black members only jacket. 
Then we have this information that seems very odd. The day after Timothy was seen leaving the Eastburns home with a black garbage bag, neighbors said he was burning stuff in his backyard for nearly five hours. Police believe this could be where a lot of the evidence was disposed of, possibly whatever was in that garbage bag, maybe bloody clothing, maybe bloody towels, things that were used to to clean up the crime scene. We don't know. Then we have a witness who said she saw Timothy using the bank machine before her. Now, what would this have to do with the murders, you ask? Well, I'm sure you've pieced it together. Police found this woman because her card was used right after Catherine Eastburn's card was used in the ATM machine. The only thing was that Catherine Eastburn was dead at the time that her card was being used in this ATM machine. That meant whoever used her card in this ATM machine most likely is the one who killed her. The card was used twice. The first transaction happened on May 10th at 10.54 p.m., which was Friday night, the same day Catherine and her two children were murdered that morning. The second time was May 11th at 8.54 a.m., so Saturday morning. The woman who used the ATM after Timothy not only described his appearance, but also his white Chevette car. She said a blonde man wearing camo pants got into a small light-colored car after using the ATM before her. Now that does describe Timothy, but I'm sure it describes lots of men in the area. I mean, it is kind of a military area. You got camo pants, tall, blonde hair. Uh, For me, it's the vehicle description that really, really sets it apart. Multiple people say they saw this white Chevette on the Eastburn Street the Thursday night and Friday morning of the murders. This vehicle seems to have been placed many times in suspicious circumstances. The ATM, the getting in it at 3.30 a.m. outside of the Eastburn's home. It just seems to be around. It was also thought that Timothy stole the card and took out a total of $300 because he was actually late paying his rent that month and it his rent was $310. The two transactions of $150 each was because Catherine's limit per day to withdraw was $150. That does look very suspicious. $300 is taken. He's late on his rent. His rent is $310. Ugh, um... That's, is that another coincidence? So is there a lot of coincidences or did Timothy do this? I would be curious to know. This is my first thought when they started talking about this money. I would be curious to know how much money was taken that was in that missing envelope that Gary said was, was taken from their home because I never got an amount on that. And I'm curious because say there was $500 in that envelope, then Timothy, he wouldn't have had to need to risk using the ATM card to get his his rent money. But if there was like $50, then he would still be short on his rent and he would still need to use the ATM card. So I just, I'm really curious to know how much money was in the envelope that was stolen. I think that would give us some more insight into this theory. Let's talk about the trial because... We're going to talk about multiple trials in this situation. So we're going to, we'll talk about the first one right now. Let's get into the first trial. Timothy, he was offered a plea deal, but he was adamant he never killed anyone. He refused to plead guilty to the crimes. Had he taken the plea deal, it would have looked something like this. 
pled guilty to two second degree murders and he would have got two life sentences and they would have been served one after the other. Not concurrently, they would have been served consecutively, which I'm assuming would have been a total of 50 years in prison. So that meant they were going to drop one of the murder charges and the rape charge and make it second degree murder instead of first degree murder. But again, Timothy, he refused this offer. He swore he had nothing to be guilty about. He did not commit this crime. During the trial, Patrick Cohn and the woman from the ATM machine, they both testified. The slaughtered images of the Eastburn's children played in the courtroom right above Timothy Hennessy's face, making sure the jury had to see his face and the slaughtered images at the same time. These images were so horrifying that you could argue somebody seeing these might take a chance in convicting the wrong person just because of the chance it's the right person. They paint the picture that Timothy Hennessy met Catherine when he purchased the family dog from her on Tuesday. That Thursday, he dropped his wife and baby off at relatives out of town and went to his ex-girlfriend's house looking for sex. When he didn't find sex there, he went looking for it at Catherine's home where he lost it and killed most of the Eastburns, leaving the baby alive because the baby couldn't ID him. By the way, the detectives, they did try to see if the baby found in the crib could tell a child psychologist anything that might lead to the killer, but nothing was discovered. When all was said and done, Timothy Hennis was found guilty, and at his sentencing, he was sentenced to death for three counts of first-degree murder and one rape. But this case is far from over. A few months goes by. Timothy Hennis is sitting on death row. Gary Eastburn is satisfied. The man who murdered his wife and two daughters is going to be killed. But then the letter arrives. This letter was apparently posted the day Timothy was sentenced to death. This is the Mr. X letter. And I'll read it once more. Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry, you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. This letter really baffles me because police, they could never figure out who sent it. Was there no return address? Was there no paper trail from the post office about where this letter came from? I know it was the 80s, but come on. I mean, I have a few theories. I'm actually not sure where I stand legally if I can theorize. <laughs> so I'm not going to do it right now. Maybe later I can throw out some what ifs, though, or you know, not accusing anyone, but just asking some questions like, could this person have done it? Could this person have done it? In 1988, Timothy Hennis had won his appeal and he was up for retrial. The main argument which led to this being granted was the graphic images that were shown of the murdered children. Some interesting stuff came out in this retrial. This retrial was very, very interesting. Not as interesting as the third trial, but pretty close. It was this retrial that had me veering to the innocent side of the roller coaster. We're on a roller coaster here. We're dipping in and out of innocent and guilty. This is how I felt this whole case reading about this. It was just innocent, guilty, innocent, guilty, innocent, guilty. You know what? I'm just going to say it right now. I'm not even sure where I landed. 
The first thing that really blew me away was that Gary Eastburn confirmed in court at the retrial on the stand that two months before his wife and children were murdered, Catherine received an ominous phone call in the late hours of the night. And this phone call was a man saying he knew her name and he was coming to her house. So I could imagine he was like, I know your name, Catherine, and I'm coming to your house. What the fuck? Why is this the first time anyone is hearing about this? Why hadn't Gary talked about this earlier? I mean, maybe he did. And maybe police, they didn't get any leads on it. So they just went after Timothy. Timothy Hennis didn't even know Catherine before purchasing the dog. And there was zero evidence to suggest that he did. So who the hell was this man making these threatening phone calls to Catherine two months before she's murdered? saying he knows where she lives, calling her at nighttime. I would say there is there no link between between the two of those things. We never do find out, but something tells me we really should know who that was because I just I get such a strong bad feeling that there is a connection between the phone call and the murders. Let's talk about the defense's findings about the witnesses who testified at the first trial. This is where things, this is where I start getting some doubt. They claim that Patrick Cohn was a liar and a thief. And then they pointed to his rap sheet since the trial, not, not his whole life, just since the first trial, in between the trial and the retrial, which I believe was like three or four years or something like this. And this did not make Patrick look good. And it hinted that he was a drunk. Of course, this was brought up to discredit his testimony, and it looked like it was working. The defense then brought up the lady who claims she saw Timothy at the ATM when Catherine's ATM card was being used after she was murdered. Apparently, her first recount of this was that she didn't see anything. But as the trial grew closer, suddenly she could remember the description of the man she saw. She could remember his vehicle. Again, this is not looking good and it's creating a lot of reasonable doubt because this woman first told police, I don't know, I didn't see anybody. How do you get from, I don't know, I didn't see anybody to a perfect description of Timothy Hennis by the time the trial rolls around? I mean, it's just... Eek! Doesn't feel right. So the defense had been busy finding their own people to testify, and they found two. One was a woman who delivered newspapers, and she claims to have seen a man by the Eastburn home Friday morning at 1.45 a.m. So she would have been out delivering papers. It was really early. She sees this man, and he's in a van, not a car, and he had long scraggly hair I think she described it and of course this person does not match Timothy's description this person is never located who is this person what were they doing outside of the Eastburn's home in a van were they in the driveway were they parked outside the home I don't know all I could get was that that's what she saw was a man in a van outside their home 1 a.m long scraggly hair then the second person they found This really casted some reasonable doubt on Patrick Cohn's statement because it was a teenage boy who looked so much 
like Timothy Hennis. It's said that they looked so much alike that they could be brothers and nobody would doubt it. This boy was very tall. He had blonde hair and he admitted that he was walking around the neighborhood around 3 a.m. because he always does. I'm not sure if he walks around smoking cigarettes or because he can't sleep or whatever he's doing, but this means maybe Patrick saw this boy, not Timothy Hennis. By the way, this was never mentioned, but was this teenage boy ever looked into? What is he doing walking around at 3 a.m.? Is he peeping? Is he is he peeping Tommen or like what is he doing? I mean, he just said he walks around at 3 a.m. And he was near the Eastburn's home the night of the murder. What makes us so sure he didn't actually have anything to do with the murder? Just a question. Just a question. I And I, it never went into this teenage boy. I never learned any more about him, whether he was looked into or not. But then you remember. So if, if it was this teenage boy that Patrick Cohn saw, then what about the fact that Patrick Cohn said he saw the guy who he saw at 3.30 a.m. get into a, a white Chevette before police even knew Timothy Hennis was a suspect and drove a white Chevette. So what's all this about? It's just, it's all getting more muddied, but it's casting reasonable doubt. Let's talk about the physical evidence left at the scene. There was shoe prints found at the East Burns, but these prints were much smaller than Timothy's. In fact, the print was three sizes smaller than Timothy's. There was a pubic hair and other hair found in the home that didn't belong to the Eastburns or Timothy. This was explained that perhaps it was past tenants as this was a rental home. Why they didn't contact the last people who lived there and test their hair against these hair, I don't know. Probably wouldn't have been that hard to figure that out if the hairs belonged to past tenants or not, but they didn't do this. They're just like, oh, they don't match anyone, including Timothy. They didn't, they didn't match Timothy. So was this hair, these multiple hair they found, pubic and, and, and head or body hair, did these belong to the real murderer or did they belong to past tenants? Because they didn't belong to anyone in the home and they didn't belong to Timothy. There was also blood found on a towel. This blood was not a match to Timothy. And I read it was a spot of blood. So I don't know if it was fresh or what, but I could imagine the killer leaving lots of blood had he touched a towel, not a spot. Either way, this blood spot evidence, it seemed to go nowhere or at the very least not towards Timothy. Same with the fingerprints found in the home. Again, didn't match Timothy. This next thing was quite persuasive, I must say. The black member's only jacket Timothy owned and Patrick Cohn said he saw wearing while leaving the Eastburns home at 3.30 a.m. The same jacket that was brought to the dry cleaners the Friday the Eastburns were murdered. Well, it was analyzed and there was not a single blood droplet or any other evidence on that jacket. Apparently, it would be impossible for the dry cleaning chemicals to remove all that evidence if there was evidence on there. So even though he had it dry cleaned, they would have found blood. They would have found Catherine's DNA. They would have found the children's DNA. They would have found hair. They would have found something from that crime scene because that crime scene was brutal. And I mean, I guess if you wanted to argue, oh, well, maybe Timothy removed the jacket upon entering the Eastburn's home and then showered before leaving and grabbing it, then maybe no evidence would be on it. 
But I find it hard to believe that there would be no evidence on it or even in his car or anywhere. There was no Catherine and the children's blood was never found in his car, on his clothing, on him in any way, shape or form. He was never directly linked to this crime scene. Next, they asked Timothy, hey, we know you went to your ex-girlfriend's house that Thursday night. Why didn't you mention that earlier? You know, why did we have to find that out in, by other means? And so Timothy tells the jury, he's like, well, I didn't talk about going to my ex-girlfriend's house Thursday night because it didn't seem relevant. I didn't think it mattered. Again, if I'm going to play devil's advocate here, then that could actually make sense. I mean, it's the 80s and 90s. It, during the 80s and 90s, my aunts and uncles and, and like family friends, they used to drop in and visit my parents all the time unannounced because they were just driving past. You know, it wasn't planned. People weren't calling each other or texting each other on cell phones. It was just you're coming back from the shop or you're coming back from wherever and you're like, oh, look, their vehicle's there. I'm going to pop in and say hello. So to me, this doesn't seem too weird and it could be true because people used to just drop into people's houses all the time. And it's possible that they didn't remember. It's just so common. Like, oh, yeah, I popped in to see you Thursday. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, why would I talk about that? Because there was no, nothing happened. I popped in and said hello. It's like saying, oh, did you call this person and say hello four years ago? I was like, I don't know, maybe. It's common for people to call each other and say hello. That's how I feel about this. It's, it was common for people to just drop in and say hello. This retrial, it raised so much reasonable doubt that Timothy Hennis was exonerated and was now a free man. But it doesn't end here. Timothy re-enlists in the military and for over the next 20 years, he leads a good life. He gets a promotion and he's now staff sergeant. Timothy, he never gives anyone any reason to think he is a cold-blooded murderer. He's getting his life back together. He's He's doing all these things. He's getting promoted. The man was granted awards. His co-workers spoke highly of him. They trusted him. One guy even said Timothy was a gentle giant. And this kind of gave me goosebumps because do you know who else was called a gentle giant who nobody ever suspected? Edmund Kemper. And he is one of the most depraved, fucked up serial killers on the planet, in my opinion. And whenever anybody talked to him, including, I didn't talk to him, but just like listening to his interviews of people talking to him, he is so polite. He is so well-mannered. He is soft-spoken. He's this big man and people call him a gentle giant. But when you hear the depravity of his crimes, how he murdered these women, cut off their heads, had sex with their severed heads, and he did this over and over and over again, you're like, what the fuck? Like, it's hard to piece those two together. Edmund Kemper, looking at him, you would not think that he would commit such horrible, gruesome crimes. So I guess what I'm getting at is just because Timothy Hennis went and lived this life where people trusted him and called him a gentle giant, it doesn't necessarily speak volumes to me. And the fact that he's in the army doesn't either because just look at uh, Colonel Russell Williams. He, he was a very high-ranking officer in the Canadian army. And a lot of people spoke highly of him. And then he committed really terrible, disgusting crimes. 
So I'm not sure that Timothy Hennis having this perfect 20-year track record in the army, I don't think that really proves anything to me. A lot of people would think it does, but I'm like, eh. There could be a lot we don't know as well. I mean, Timothy was shipped off to other countries. He was overseas for a while. We don't know what he did there. We don't know if he upheld these perfect values there. We don't know. By 1998, Gary Eastburn was remarried, and he and his wife and his daughter, they were living in Washington. Little did they know, 15 miles away was Timothy Hennis and his family also living in Washington. That was crazy to me because why did they both choose the same location to live in? I mean, was this a military thing? Is this like a great place for ex-military to live? I don't know, but it seems very odd that they ended up living 15 miles apart when they had an entire country to live in. It's just, what the hell was that about? In 2004, Timothy retired from the army, and in 2005, the Eastburn's cold case was cracked open. When the Eastburn's murder scene was processed 20 years ago, DNA testing, it wasn't up to speed yet, and therefore two vaginal swabs containing sperm that were taken from Catherine's body, they were not tested, they were saved, and the time had come now that they could be tested and they were going to be tested. It takes a year to get the results back, and it comes back positive for Timothy Hennis. That's right. That's, you heard me. This is what makes me uncomfortable about this though. Okay, so first of all, first of all, this is crazy because they had him in jail for this crime. They had him on death row for this. He was proven guilty. Then there was a retrial and he gets exonerated from this and they're like okay you didn't do it you're actually innocent 20 years later they test this sperm sample that had come from from Catherine at the crime scene and it tests positive for Timothy Hennis or so they say this is the part that really makes me uncomfortable the person who tested the sample didn't say it matched Timothy Hennis they said that the sample is 1.2 quadrillion times more likely to be from Timothy Hennis than from any other white male in North Carolina. What the hell does that even mean? Why can't they tell me that this, not just me, sorry. Why couldn't they tell everyone? Why couldn't they tell detectives? Why couldn't they tell the courts? Why couldn't they tell everybody that it matches perfectly to Timothy Hennis? Why couldn't they say this is, this sperm came from Timothy Hennis. I need to hear that. I don't need to hear, oh, 1.2 quadrillion times more likely to be from Timothy Hennis than from any other white male in North Carolina. I don't want to hear that. That does not make me feel comfortable at all. I don't know how they got to that point. I don't know. What I would like them to say is we tested this against Timothy Hennis's DNA and it is a perfect match. This is this came from Timothy Hennis. That's what I want to hear, and that's what I didn't hear, and that's why that makes me uncomfortable. But obviously, this still looks really bad for Timothy Hennis. He never said anything about having sex with Catherine, yet soon we will see his defense changes their story. <laughs> but 
there is a small matter of something called double jeopardy. Never have I seen this in real life. I've never seen this play out in real life, but here we are. So let's see how this plays out. Then something else happens I've never seen in a case before. And I didn't even know it was possible, to be honest. The army said they would take Timothy Hennis out of retirement and put him on trial for the murders in military court. Apparently, this is a lot different from civilian court. This, because he had been, uh, he had been tried in civilian court. Military court's different. Therefore, the double jeopardy doesn't apply. Unfortunately, due to statute of limitations, this meant the rape charge could no longer be brought against Timothy. So the rape charge was out. That was gone. But he still had three first degree murder charges. And Timothy, he learns that the military is going to take him out of retirement and bring him to trial for these murders on September 26, 2006. And he's not happy about it. I believe he yelled, this is bullshit. I mean, he thought this ended 20 years ago, but here it was coming to get him again. March of 2010, the court martialed trial begins. This is the military court now. The prosecutor brought forward the new evidence of the DNA, and this was very, 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 very compelling. Timothy's defense argued he didn't trust the lab who tested it because in the past, some shady stuff had occurred. And apparently, this was fact. In fact, a worker there who was in charge of evidence had been caught stealing evidence and was convicted of that crime. So it seemed this lab had kind of a checkered past. The prosecution was clearly trying to discredit the lab. And honestly, had they stuck to that, I may have believed them. But then they attempt something else, something I find extremely unimaginable. Timothy's defense says that the night Catherine, Kara, and Aaron were murdered, Timothy had consensual sex with Catherine, and that's why his semen was found in Catherine. Consensual sex. I find this in incredibly hard to believe. And when I use the word incredible, that is an understatement. I find this extremely hard to believe. Why is this the first time in 20 years we're hearing about this? Basically, the defense is trying to make us believe that Timothy had sex with Catherine Thursday night consensually, then left, and then someone else came by, sliced her underwear off with a knife, ripped her blouse, tore her jeans off, murdered her and her children, left the baby alive to die in a crib, and fled the scene. They know that Catherine was killed very shortly after the semen was left because the specimen, it didn't have time to deteriorate. Apparently, it was like a time stamp. Basically, this rules out the possibility that Timothy had sex with Catherine on the Tuesday she picked up the dog and it would have been on the night of the murders. So either Thursday night or early Friday morning. This DNA evidence, it spoke loud and clear to the jury. And Timothy Hennis was again found guilty and sentenced to death. In the courtroom during this trial was a 26-year-old woman. This woman 
was once the baby that was left in the crib to die in 1985. Finally, her and her father, Gary Eastburn, could rest easy knowing they finally got justice. There is no doubt in their minds or the detectives' minds that Timothy Hennis committed these gruesome crimes. But what about you? Are you as convinced? Let's talk theories. Who wrote the Mr. X letter? Well, my thinking is that possibly someone related to Timothy wrote it or he himself wrote it and paid some kid to drop those letters off in the mailbox the day of his sentencing had he been found guilty. I really do not think his wife had anything to do with writing the Mr. X letters, although she never testified. So maybe there's a reason she didn't testify. I mean, she can't testify against her husband. I think that's the law or something. But maybe they were going to ask her, did you write that letter? And she would have been under oath. You know, just a theory. Something that keeps coming back into my mind is the threatening phone call Catherine was receiving two months before she was murdered. That really needed to be looked into more because I really do feel like that has something to do with this crime. And if not, then what the hell was that all about? Who was making these phone calls? It's just these phone calls, they're not leaving my mind. I'm constantly thinking about these in this case. And it's something that was just brushed over so much. I read just a brief snippet of this and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I need to know more because I really feel like they're connected somehow. There was a book written about this case called Innocent Victims. And in this book, it says that Timothy was innocent and even after his third trial the author still stands by his book the author wholeheartedly believes timothy is innocent he claims to have never found anything that connects timothy to these murders and he wrote a whole book on this case and he's convinced that timothy is innocent well that is all the facts i know about this case i'm still not totally sure about anything is it possible the lab got the dna test wrong why didn't any of the fingerprints, shoe prints, blood, or hair found at the crime scene match Timothy? Did Timothy really go 20 years without committing a brutal and horrific crime after committing this one? I don't know. I keep going back and forth. I feel like I could argue both sides for a long time. I mean, a good sign that someone is innocent is when they don't take a plea deal, when they don't admit to being guilty, and they say, I'm not admitting I'm guilty because I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do this and I won't admit it. To me, that's a very strong sign that somebody didn't do this. And Timothy, he did not take that plea deal. He did not admit guilt to escape the death penalty. But on the other hand, his semen was found in the body of a dead woman. But again, this semen, it was the only DNA of Timothy's found. And it was tested 20 years later by a lab with apparently a checkered past that's not really known for strong ethics. I don't know. I really hope an innocent man isn't behind bars, but I also hope a guilty man wasn't free for 20 years after committing this horrific triple homicide. It's this whole case is just, it's, it's baffling. That's all for this week's episode. If you want weekly updates when new episodes are released, please follow Hell No on Instagram and TikTok at hellno underscore a true crime podcast.
If you want to send me your fact or fiction, long or short stories for a chance to hear them read on the podcast in October, please send those to hellnopodcast at outlook.com. Just let me know if it's fact or fiction and who to credit the story to. I'm looking for paranormal stories. I'm looking for creepy stories. I'm looking for, you know, spooky stories. Thanks for listening and see you next week.